Good morning, church. It's wonderful to be with you. You know, I, I always feel this way. I love this church so much, but there are certain weeks where you feel the mission of this church kind of from beginning to end, and this is one of those for me. I just celebrate that right here on this place on Thursday, we celebrated the graduation of our Sunshine School graduates, and then just a little while ago, we, we had all of our high school graduates here. It's so beautiful to me that we have a congregation that really believes in investing in the future and the next generation of the church and how you give back to us. It is so powerful. You know, some of you have been such a blessing in my life already. I, uh, I, I won't say the names of all of them, but I mentioned to Gates earlier, one of the first people that made me and Luke feel welcome when this was a brand new place and my my bride wasn't even here yet, was you. So one of our high school students welcomed us in and made us feel like a blessing. So it's not like we just invest in you here. You guys are feeding the life of this church as well, and we are so grateful for that. I'm grateful for a church that really lives this out. I, I think it's so fitting. We've been doing this series called So What? What is the implication? What are the meanings and significance of the resurrection for everyday life? And, and we look at it happening right here in the generations of this church. It's so powerful to me. We got two weeks left in this series. We're just looking at little episodes in the book of Acts of the life of the early resurrection community. And we're going to kind of go backwards. We started in chapter 2, and we looked at a bunch of episodes, and then you're going to see we're going to go back to chapter 1 today. You might say, why are we going back to the beginning? Chapter 1 this week and chapter 2 next week, because we're actually stepping into the historical moment uh, that we're reading about in the text. Uh, you'll see as we read the passage just a, a few moments that this story we're about to read happens 40 days after uh, the Easter Sunday of Jesus' resurrection. It's one of those central moments in the Jesus story. Sometimes we don't talk enough about it. It's called the ascension of Jesus. Well, 40 days from Easter is Thursday. So we're going to mark that on this day. We're going to think about that moment. And next Sunday is roughly 2,000 years to the moment where the church as we know it was born. On this day we call Pentecost. And we're going to look at that as we end this series. Um, as you have your Bibles or your devices, you can turn to Acts chapter 1. One other thing I want to mention about this, um, my favorite thing to do is just preach through books of the Bible or chunks of the books of the Bible. And if I, if I don't do that, it will often be, I will let the, I call it this, I will let the church pick the text for me. So we're doing these um, scenes in the book of Acts, but understand the readings that track the rhythm of Jesus's life are actually chosen hundreds and hundreds of years ago. So I didn't pick the text for today. This is a text been read for hundreds of years. I think that's significant. One of the reasons why that's cool to me is sometimes uh, the church and its wisdom, I believe the Holy Spirit's working with that too, will pick a text that I wouldn't necessarily pick. Like if I were just going to preach on this one, I would take verse 1 and go through verse 11. This one starts a little bit later, and it spills into what feels like the next story. And it, it made me just say, okay, Holy Spirit, what are you doing with this? And so hopefully we'll have a little fun with that. Uh, letting, the, again, the church pick its reading for us. So if you, again, have your Bibles or devices, this is the word of the Lord. Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 6. Jesus is raised from the dead, just promised the Holy Spirit, and we pick it up in verse 6. Then the disciples gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father is set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. 
You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes. And a cloud hid him from their sight. And they were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath's day walk from the city. And when they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying, and those present were, and he lists 11 of the 12 disciples. Judas is gone. Verse 14, they all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I suspect we all have these times in our lives when we were younger, where we had what was for us a special or a fun experience, and then you look back on it and think it wasn't that big of a deal. You have those kind of moments, but it was kind of special for you. It was fun for you, and you look back and like, I don't know if that was that amazing, but it still sticks with you. And for me, I, I was thinking about an image that, that framed the passage for me here, and I was reminded of my freshman year of college. And when we went to university there, I don't know if it was a rule of the university. It was in some at that time, or I don't know if it was just a rule from my mother, but I, I wasn't allowed to have my car my freshman year. So it was like, you're going to sink into the culture of the university there. And so I did. And I remember when we started going to church, you've heard my story before. I didn't go for a little while. Then God got me by this powerful thing called campus ministry and brought us there. But if I was going to get to church, somebody's have to pick us up. And what happened is they would come in this old bus. <laughs> now, this isn't the exact picture, but it looked like this. <laughs> And it was brown. Uh, somebody took an old school bus and kind of painted this dingy brown. Had the big old stick shift on the floor. Now here's the thing. Our experience of going from campus to church in this bus was entirely determined by who was driving that thing. Now here's the thing, most of the time, people that would drive it, it was, it was uneventful and it was forgettable. But from time to time, our campus minister, a guy named Roy, he would drive. And when he did, there was one place when you were going down, there's a whole stretch where there weren't a lot of people, there were not a lot of houses, and, and the, the hill kind of went down and then went right back up really fast. So can you guess what we all wanted to do? <laughs> we all wanted to pile into the back of the bus and say, Roy, just gun it. And sometimes he would do it. He wasn't unsafe, okay, but he would go kind of fast. And we'd hit that spot and we all kind of take our hands off the seat. I don't know why this was fun, but it was amazing. And we would like want to see if we would hit the ceiling when he hit that thing. We all fly up in the air. And again, I look back and like, why is that a big deal? But it was, it was when I was a freshman. And I remember, it's funny, I told Melanie, I was like this picture and I said, does that kind of look like our old bus? She said, yeah, it looks like our bus. And she said, well, you remember when Roy used to drive us? And we would, yeah, I'm like, yes, <laughs> I'm telling that story. Like it sticks with us. Here's the thing, for that little journey, it was a tiny little journey. The entire journey was determined by who was driving the bus. And I know it's a silly image, but I think about that in light of this passage. Like we're on a journey of our lives that is determined by that question. Who is driving your bus? Who is it that's going to be the, the direction and the force and the power and the vision behind where you're going with your lives? That's the question 
of life. And when I come to this little passage of the early Christian community, Jesus casts for them a vision about who's driving and about where he's going that will help us have great meaning and significance for our lives. I think, it, by the way, it's incredibly fitting for our graduates, whether it's high school or sunshine or the graduates of the school of life day in and day out. I want to look into the story. When you do, you'll see a couple of things. The first thing that I noticed, it's so fitting, like any passengers, we can so easily be distracted. It is so easy for us to get distracted on the point and the purpose of the mission. I don't know if you caught this, but in verse 6, it all starts, their distraction comes out in one sentence. It's one question. Remember, Jesus has just told them this incredible promise. Wait for the power of the Holy Spirit. I promised it before. The Holy Spirit's coming. And so they ask this question, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And in that one little question, once you get past kind of the, 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 the translation between then and now, you'll see the distractions they struggle with are still true today. First distraction that I notice is a distraction of dates and calendars and times. Lord, are you at this time? And they want to know when it is right now. I was struck by this was the struggle for them then, but it's still true today. One of the commentators, when I was studying this text, pointed out, did you know this text came out 2,000 years ago, and for 2,000 years, followers of Jesus have been arguing and fighting about what's going to happen in the 1,000-year reign in the book of Revelation. (laughs) And we'll argue and we'll fight about the end times, and what's the different view, and what's going to happen first, and who's going to come when. And Jesus started this whole movement by saying these words, it's not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set. Doesn't mean you can't explore it. Doesn't mean you can't talk about it. But you know, there's some people that will viciously fight in Christianity about what's going to happen in the end times. And I'll get it. Because at the beginning of the end times, our Lord says, dates, calendars, not your business. It's a distraction to what is our purpose. I've seen that before, but this is one of the reasons why you keep coming back to Scripture. I'd never noticed one word points out another distraction that they had back then, and I think we, in our own way, will still fall into that today. Do you notice their question? They said, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to, did anybody catch it? To what? You can talk loud and proud. You got it right. The kingdom to what? Israel. What? Now, that's kind of strange. Why would you say that? Listen, they were still even after the resurrection of Jesus, before the Holy Spirit has come, they're still struggling with the old ideas. By the way, we can't pick on them too much because I think they had in their head the stories of David. If you read the stories of David in the Old Testament, God anoints and appoints David to be his king, the king of Israel. Now, the time that he anointed him and he appointed him, between that time and the time he actually sat on the throne was a long time. And in the meantime, he's running around in the wilderness with a ragtag group of people, Now here's the thing, that group of people that stuck with David when he was a nobody became really powerful and important when he was the king. Does that make sense? Now if you get that picture, now you understand when you go back and read the Gospels, by the way, they all thought about it, but James and John get highlighted for this argument about who the greatest is, and they come up to Jesus, or the mother comes up to Jesus, and they ask, hey Jesus, can we be at your right and left hand? What are they doing? They're fighting when Jesus is in the ragtag group in the wilderness for who's going to have the position of power when he comes and sits on the throne. They're still stuck in a human national picture. Are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Why is that significant? Well, we didn't read this part, but back in verse 3, 
Luke tells us what Jesus has been talking about for 40 days. He's resurrected. He ascends 40 days later. That entire 40 days, he's talking about one thing, which the same thing, by the way, he talked about in the beginning of his ministry. You know what it is? Look in verse 3. It says, for 40 days, he kept talking to them about the kingdom of God. That was his opening sermon, by the way. I think he did more than one sentence, but the punchline is, repent, turn around, go a different direction. Why? Because the kingdom of God. God is showing up. That's what he said at the beginning, and that's what he says with his last 40 days. God's going to rule. God's going to reign. We've talked about this before. I love the summary that one writer puts it. What's this whole kingdom of God thing? It's what life looks like when God's running the show. (laughs) And Jesus says God's going to run the show. And they are still so caught up in what's it going to look like when we get back to where we're supposed to be. Are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, what's the translation today? I think we still struggle with this. It may not be Israel, but all of us have some tendency to want to go back to blank, the glory days of blank. It might be the glory days of our church. By the way, we're doing great here, but there might be sometimes we think, oh, man, it wasn't better here, it wasn't better then. It might be the glory days of your family. It might be the glory days of your life. Back when things were easier or a different place you lived or something like that. We all want to go back to that. Sometimes, let's be honest, they're struggling with their national picture. We will do that too. I love my country, but hear me. It is not the point of Christianity to go back to the time when we were a Christian nation. And we worry about where we're not a Christian nation anymore. Listen, most of the founding fathers, I'm a lawyer. Most of the founding fathers were deists. They thought God spun the world and stepped back. Whatever that is, it's not Christian. That doesn't mean it wasn't uh, kinder to Christians at some point. But listen, the point isn't to get America someplace. Jesus says that's not for us to worry about. God appoints the times and seasons for nations to rise and fall, for leaders to rise and fall. That's not the point. It's just a distraction. Watch. Because Christians can get really distracted about what the point is. And Jesus, in the middle of this distracted group, turns them back, redirects them to power and purpose. Isn't this beautiful? What does he do to these distracted people? Power and purpose. How does he do this? A couple things. He says, listen, you don't need to worry about any of that stuff, but listen to this promise. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit of the creator of the universe comes upon you. I know we've heard those words so much, but don't rush past it. We get so caught up in times and dates and politics and who's in charge and all that kind of stuff. We miss out the promise. Jesus said, the Holy Spirit of the resurrected Christ, will live on you and through you. By the way, I believe this and elsewhere in this story are fulfillments of a long, long longing and prayer. Long time, years, centuries old longing and prayer. Uh, When he says these words, the Holy Spirit's going to come on (laughs) y'all, that's what he says, It's a fulfillment of a prayer and a longing that a guy had years and years and years ago. It's a little kind of obscure story. Maybe you haven't seen it in a long time or ever. But in Numbers chapter 11, go read that sometime. What you find is there's a guy named Moses who was appointed by God to be the leader of his people. And back in the Old Testament times, the Holy Spirit was still present, but he tended to focus more on an individual. And Moses is serving and leading, and he's full of the Holy Spirit leading, but he gets tired because he's carrying the load more than he should. And so there's this beautiful moment in Numbers 11 where God says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to spread the Spirit out a little bit. And he appoints 70 people to receive the Holy Spirit and to speak on God's behalf. And they prophesy and they do these cool things. Now here's what's interesting. Two guys that weren't part of the 70 group, 
they get the Holy Spirit too. And they start prophesying too. And young Joshua, not seasoned or mature yet, young Joshua goes up to defend Moses. And he said, look, there are two guys out there with the Holy Spirit. And they're prophesying and doing all this stuff. Basically, we need to shut them up. (laughs) And Moses says something that I think is echoing all the way into this moment that we celebrate today. Think about this. Numbers chapter 11, verse 29. Moses said, are you jealous for me? I wish, listen to this, here's his longing. I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Holy Spirit would come on all of them. Listen, this great leader of the people of God back in the day said, I wish Holy Spirit would come on everybody. And guess what Jesus says is about to happen? Guess what you're going to talk about next week? The Holy Spirit of God comes on Everybody, men, women, young, old, every stripe, every nationality. It's not just one leader. It's so powerful, isn't it? That's the promise. Holy Spirit's coming. And there is a purpose behind the power, right? We've talked about this again and again. Let me say it again. Verse 8 is like the thesis uh, statement of the whole book of Acts. You will receive power. The Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my, you get a job. What's the job? You're going to be my, not the judge, not the jury, not the defense attorney. Now, the prosecutor, you're going to be my, please tell me, witnesses. We said it again and again. Now, here's the beautiful thing. All a witness has to do is what? We said it before. Tell the truth about what they've seen, heard, and experienced. And when the Holy Spirit's power comes on them and the resurrection Christ is experienced by them, they just have to tell what they see. And that's your job. By the way, a little wrinkle. We've talked about that a lot, so I won't say much about it. But there's a little wrinkle to this. Did you know it's fitting to this day? Sorry, my mic's driving me nuts. In that day, when a new king, a new Caesar, a new emperor would take the throne, they had certain people whose job it was, they called them heralds. And the way that the authority of that new king would go and spread throughout the whole country is there would be heralds whose job it was to announce to the whole country. They would go to all these places and they would announce, we have a new king. Everybody would celebrate. By the way, even if it wasn't the greatest king in the world, back in that crazy world, Having any king was better than the chaos of not having anybody. And so that they would go, and it was powerfully good news. Guess what your job is? You get to go as you graduate, wherever you go. As you live day in and day out, wherever you go, you get to announce to the world, we have a king, and he's incredible. He died, and he didn't stay dead, and we announce to the world that we have a new king. And the world will receive that if they're open to it as powerfully good news. And you know what's so beautiful about this? And you see it again throughout the book of Acts. He promises it here and then it happens throughout the book of Acts. They don't have to strategize much. He said, here's what's going to happen. You're going to testify as witnesses by the power of the Holy Spirit in Jerusalem, then Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. It will spread. Do you know they didn't have to sit down and have a strategy meeting? How are we going to reach the end of the earth? Here's what happened. Listen, this is so simple. You start where you already are. Where were they? They were in Jerusalem. You'll see again next week, a lot of people that were in Jerusalem weren't living there. They came for the festival, but they started telling the story of the resurrected Christ there, and it naturally spread. Go read the book of Acts. They didn't have to strategize. The Holy Spirit would prompt them. Sometimes he'd stir things up a little bit. Persecutions would send them out. Natural things would happen. Visions and dreams would pop up. They would be sitting in a worship and a prayer meeting, and the Holy Spirit would call people out and send them. You don't have to kind of Figure out how are we going to reach the ends of the earth. Start where you are. I was inspired by that as I was reminded last week, just sitting, talking in the lobby out there, 
My friend Doug MacArthur, I love you, man. I told you before, I want everybody here. I love the way you love your wife. She's gone on to be with Jesus. You love her and you honor her so well. You teach us, right? If you want to learn how to love your wife, go talk to that man right there. But you know what I love about him? Last week, he was just talking about, he reminded me of something I know he does. How do you live as a witness? Start where you are. You know what he does every week? He goes to the mall and for exercise, what do you do, Doug? He walks around the mall. But is that all he does? You know what Doug does when he's walking around the mall? He's praying for people. And sometimes it's just praying in general, but sometimes, like you told me last week, the Holy Spirit will prompt you, right, Doug, to go up to somebody and pray for them and ask them. And didn't you say you prayed for a lady of the Muslim faith last week? You just went up there and just prayed for her. And I don't know what's going to happen, but the Holy Spirit starts in Jerusalem and touches the ends of the earth when we do that. Thank you, Doug, for modeling that for us. That's what it looks like. Could it be that easy? But here's the problem. We get so distracted. Holy Spirit of God, refocus us away from the distractions of calendar and date, politics and nations and all of that to the power and purpose you've called us to. But you know what stands at the center of this text? It's what I call a mountaintop experience. In fact, a lot of scholars will compare what happens in the ascension of Jesus to the transfiguration of Jesus. Jesus comes in fully human form and he's bouncing around just like all of us day in and day out but every now and then we get a glimpse of the true glory and identity of Jesus and the ascension of Jesus is one of those moments and what happens here it says he was lifted up before their eyes we talked about this a lot on Wednesday night don't think okay Jesus is floating off behind the moon somewhere that's not the point the ascension is he was lifted up like you guys have been lifted up you've gone from high school to now vocations or college and all that you've gone from sunshine school and now they're going to be lifted up into elementary school and all that it's a movement upward in that sense of the word and Jesus is going yes he's going somewhere he's going into the space of God into the presence of God now listen to me what is the essential about this is so important he's going to the place of God in a position of power All throughout scripture it says Jesus ascended and sits at the right hand of God. That's an image for the king ruling and the right hand person right there ruling in power. Jesus has ascended to a place of power. So we think about this a couple different ways. Let's think about the imagery here. It's really powerful. And by the way, it has really important implications for those of us, especially when you're uncertain or you're struggling in life today. When it talks about the clouds, we know this. We studied Exodus not long ago. Throughout Scripture, clouds are used as a symbol for what? The presence of God, the direction of God, the power of God. So when Jesus ascends to the clouds, he's going to the presence of God. That's a powerful image. And there are two things at work here. Number one is an old prophecy back in Daniel chapter 7. Again, I want you to think about the ascension. It's an enormously important moment. Daniel chapter 7, I want you to think about this way. They were struggling in a world where he's literally in exile. Have you ever been in a situation where it seems like everything around you is not the way it's supposed to be? And the world is falling apart. And literally that's what's going on in the book of Daniel, right? The pagan rulers are beating up on the people of God. And so God gives them a vision. By the way, sometimes the vision doesn't start great. It starts out by saying, it shows these images of these horns was a way of power. So picture some human leaders uh, flexing their muscles and beating up the people of God. That's a great vision to get when you're in exile already. But that's not where it ends. While the human leaders are bragging and flexing their muscles, this is what it says in the book of Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. In my vision at night, I looked, and there was before me one like the Son of Man. That is Jesus' favorite title for himself. 
coming, listen to the image, with the clouds of heaven. And he approached the ancient of days. Don't think of God as the old man sitting on the front porch. Think of the one who was and is and is to come, knows all things, has been here for all time. He approaches the ancient days and was led into his presence. Now listen to this picture. How important is this when the world seems to be falling apart? He was given authority and glory and sovereign power and all nations and peoples of every language, cue to next week, worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And all the early followers of Jesus said that old, old prediction in Daniel came true in this moment when Jesus ascended to the place of power. In other words, here's the short form, Jesus is in charge. And you may not see it all the time and it may not feel like it all the time, but Jesus is king of the universe now. This prophecy has already been fulfilled. By the way, it's so beautiful how the Bible will sometimes point out things. We get so caught up in stupid little things that we think are powerful. All throughout the book of Luke, Luke loves doing this. He loves pointing out the false imposter powers that there are and then showing them up with Jesus. We've done this with Christianity forever. When we say the words Jesus is Lord, that was thumbing their nose to the statement that was popular in that day, which was Caesar is Lord. When we say Jesus is the Prince of Peace, that was thumbing their nose to Caesar, who said Pax Romana, the Rome and peace, Rome brings peace to the world. But here's what happens. Again, I've never seen this before, but it's a beautiful image. Did you know that the Roman emperors would talk using this language when they died? This is a picture on the left of the Arch of Titus, one of the great Roman emperors back in the day. Well, great, um, well-known, powerful but under the arch are different scenes, and one of them, you can't really see it very well, but on the right, because it looks hundreds and hundreds, hundreds of years old, but on the right, this is a, a picture of at his funeral, what they said was happening was that he ascended to heaven on the wings of an eagle. So he's standing on the back of an eagle. And it says his spirit kind of is taken by the eagle up into the heavens where he goes not just being an emperor anymore, he's a son of God. And Luke will tell this story, and the early church tells this story of Jesus and say, like, that's just a cheap imitation of the real thing. Not just Jesus' spirit, but his resurrected body that will be like the body that we will get when he comes back, goes into the very presence of God and ascends, and he didn't have to fake it. He is the Son of God. Isn't that powerful? All this to say, we get all these cheap imitations. Got a couple images of, of the ascension that people have painted over time, and I know these don't always capture, but I like, the, I like especially the one, excuse me, the one on the right. Jesus is seated in a throne of light. And the reminder again is this, listen, when everything looks like it's going crazy, remember who is driving the bus. He's already in charge. And yes, we wait and we long for it because we don't always see it all yet, but understand he's going somewhere. He's in the driver's seat. He knows what he's doing. Isn't it glorious, by the way, you've seen little small images of this. Isn't it glorious when you, when you meet somebody who has incredible power, but they know what to do with it? Have you ever seen images of this? This is a silly example. It's the one that came to my mind because it just stuck with me. We went, we were in college one time to help clean up after a hurricane, and we came to this one house. So picture like mobile home. They don't have much anyway, and their house, so you picture the house is sitting like this, and there was this enormous tree that was like this. I mean like feet 
from, if anything happened, that tree was going to go down anyway. It was going to crush the house. And one of my friends that was our campus ministry, he's a graduate student, and he was a forestry major. He has now worked for the, uh, the National Forest Department. But he had incredible power in his hands because he had this thing called a chainsaw. But the cool thing is I could have a chainsaw, but I don't know what to do with it. But here's what's amazing to me. He cut a notch in the bottom of that tree in such a way. I will never forget this. It's sitting like this. Do you know what it did? It walked over here and laid down the ground. Kid you not, he cut it in such a way, it moved just like this. That's such a silly example, but listen to me. Jesus is in charge. He has all the power in the universe, and he knows what to do with it. It may look like a mess. It may look like you're a hair away from just losing everything. Jesus has it in his hands. We get a chance to worship and glorify and praise that particular Jesus for his ascension. Last thing I want to say here is this is the part of the story that, again, I wouldn't even talk about this if the church didn't kind of make me do it, which I love this. So you go from this incredible mountaintop moment to what? Kind of a new normal is the way that I want to think about it. It's a new normal. It's kind of ordinary. It's kind of boring. It's a new normal, and it's an ordinary kind of transformed normal. I'm on the next slide, by the way. Um, here's the way to think about it. In this last section, the reading looks almost boring. So you got this great, incredible mountaintop moment, Jesus sitting on the throne, God, all that kind of stuff. And it says, okay, they went back to a house and an upper room, maybe the same upper room, gathered. There's some apostles there, some men and women there, and they prayed. It's just kind of normal, kind of ordinary. But I love that it ends because our life isn't spent in the mountaintop ascension moments. Our life is spent in the upper room moments. And what I find in there is a posture of the church that changes everything. It's normal, it's ordinary, but it's a new normal, and it's a transformed ordinary. Two things happen there that I see already in this church, and we celebrate today, but I'm telling you I want to live into it more and more and more. Two things they're doing seem so normal and boring and ordinary, but it's so powerful. First of all, it says they were together. Did you catch that? They were together. And Luke, as he does throughout his gospel, goes out of his way to say, yeah, apostles... Men, women. He'll say next chapter, men, women, young and old. The, book of, the whole book of Luke starts with old men and old women. And then it goes through younger men, children, all the way. They're together. It's like, why, why do we stop on? Listen, they joined together. This is one of the reasons you'll see Paul hit it again and again and again in the book of Ephesians. You will hear me talk about this again and again and again. I will die fighting for the unity of the body of Christ. Because the only way the power of the resurrected Jesus spread all over that place is because they started by joining together. And I love that Luke points out it's a small group. It's a ragtag group of people, but they were together. Number one. And number two, they were together in prayer. You see that? They joined together and they joined together in prayer. And I, I, I just want to encourage this again and again. This isn't just a moment. We say, man, we love you. We celebrate you. It is part of the fabric of this church to say we're going to be one church. I got reminded of this, just a powerful moment. Holy Spirit taps sometimes, I believe. I was, I was done with something. I was walking from another part of the building. I was about to go into my office. And I saw someone I love. I said, that, that looks like Miss Kathy. Sure enough, I looked over there, and, and I, I really sensed, like, don't just drive by. Go over and talk. And we had a wonderful conversation, didn't we, Miss Kathy? But here's what I love, guys. I want you to know this. You didn't know. This is the middle of the week. She came in to do stuff for the teaching that she's done for years and years and years. But you know what she did? She couldn't walk by your table. She stopped 
every one of your pictures that you graduated. And she was, nobody else saw her. She lingered over that table, thinking about you guys. I know her, suspect praying for you, knowing some of you that you taught. And I love this. One of our beautiful saints that taught for decades in this church is spending time praying and honoring and loving the youngest, not the youngest, some of the younger people in our church. Isn't that beautiful? We're together here. Those moments are what it's all about. And it feels ordinary, feels normal, but it's a new normal. And they're together in this prayer. Here's the thing that I see in their prayer. They actually expected the Holy Spirit of God to show up and do something. They weren't just going to church. They weren't just checking off a religious box. Listen, they gathered in prayer expecting the promise of the Holy Spirit to shake them up a little bit, to empower them a little bit, and to get out and tell the story. They were together in prayer, ready to tell the story when the Holy Spirit came. And I thought about this little ordinary part of the text. I'm reminded of something Rick Ashley said years ago that stuck with me when he was studying the book of Acts. He said, why is it we read through the book of Acts and we see the stories we've seen over the last several weeks and we look at the stuff in the book of Acts and we say, isn't that extraordinary? Isn't that weird? Isn't that amazing? He said, no, this is the story of the early church. That ought to be ordinary. The Holy Spirit comes upon us. And when lives are transformed, and when people give their lives to the purpose of Jesus, and yeah, it's not always easy sometimes, but they're doing stuff that changes their entire world. That ought to be normal. He said, maybe sometimes we've gotten so used to church being what we made it, that we've, we've made what's supposed to be normal extraordinary. And I love that these people got together in prayer, and they expected God to show up powerfully. It still happens. I end with this. A lot of you have said for weeks and weeks and weeks, and people kept coming up to me and saying, you got to see this movie. And we've seen the Jesus Revolution, see the movie? Heaven's a powerful movie. I wasn't around for that. Some of you guys were probably around first time. Sometimes I've heard a lot of you say, you missed it. I, I didn't see it. There are times when God works, we don't know. I'll say this, by the way. Uh, no one that under, sees all this completely understands or agrees with everything that happened. But one thing that I know is that God was working in a movement some decades ago in this church, in this church, in this, in this country, because thousands of people named Jesus as their Lord and were baptized into Christ. That's like what happened. I don't know, there's only, for, I don't know about you, but there's only two teams that work in this world. One is the enemy and the other is Jesus. And the enemy doesn't like people being baptized in the name of Jesus Christ and naming him Lord. So whatever you call that, God was doing something. And, and this, this is a picture of back in the 1960s. Uh, this is Newport Beach in California, Pirate's Cove. And they would come out in droves, and they were baptized into Christ. They're confessing the name of Jesus, they're baptized into Christ. And that started with a tiny little fragment of a dying church. Like you take a little chunk of this right here, that was it. But some people gathered together, and they were together in prayer. In fact, they worked hard to stay together when it got hard and people got weird. God did stuff through it, and people came. Now, a lot of people know that part of the story. Here's what struck me as I was looking into it a little bit more. One of the men, young men that were baptized on that beach, I won't tell a whole lot of it again, but it's a 40, 50-year-old story, so you kind of know this, but a guy named Greg Laurie was there, and God kept working with him. In fact, yeah, Melanie, I noticed that you taped one of his sermons. Like, he's still preaching today. But what I did not realize is four years ago, he got a conviction, hey, let's do this again, and they gathered together with some other churches, and they went down to that same place. This is four years ago. 
And 550 people were baptized into Jesus Christ in that same place. Now, here's the thing that was cool. This is what hit me. These are the words he said when he was experiencing what was going on there. He said, it's simpler than we think. Something that occurred to me as we were baptizing all those people is that if you want to see a revival, do revival-like things. That's a good thing. If you want to see a revival, just do revival-like things. And I thought, man, we've been studying the book of Acts. If we want to experience what's going on in the book of Acts, maybe we ought to do Acts-like things. Now, are you ready for the revolutionary thing he brings up that they did? He said two things we used to do back then. We had baptisms, and we would do them publicly, and we openly talked about the gospel. Hold on, we baptized people, and we openly talked about Jesus. I don't know about you, that sounds like the Great Commission to me. (laughs) And God blessed it. So what about us? God can take a group of a ragtag handful of people and make resurrection explode in their time. So what about us? Can God do it again? Now listen, I'm not talking about thousands of baptisms and all that. I'm not, not talking about that, by the way. But I do believe the Holy Spirit of God always stands ready to do a fresh work among his people if they're together in prayer, ready to tell the story of what Jesus has done in our lives. I don't know about you, but I see more than just a handful of folks. The Holy Spirit's working on, in, and through. And I'm ready to experience that next thing, aren't you? So here's the way I want to end. I normally just kind of pray for me. I just want to pull out a classic prayer. Can we just pray for the same Holy Spirit that shook him up then and has done it throughout the time? Let's just pray this again. If you want to join with me and do it, you can. Um, and then we'll end the series next week with promise of Pentecost. Again, join with me if you'd like. Come, Holy Spirit, fill our hearts and kindle them in the fire of your love. O God, who, by the light of your Holy Spirit, instructs the hearts of the faithful, grant that by this same Holy Spirit we may be truly wise and ever rejoice in his good gifts. Through Christ our Lord. Amen.